Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there. Aloha. Uh, And Jerry's out there somewhere. Aloha. And um, this is Stuff You Should Know, ha. (laughs) Melakalikeilaka, that's pronounced. Yeah, that's actually a little-known fact. That's the Hawaiian way to say Merry Christmas <laughs> to you. Uh, I didn't know the story, by the way. This, this is pretty interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. I have to say, Chuck, before we get started, we have to give a huge shout-out, huge, to a dude. I don't know his name, but he's on Instagram mm-hmm. as people Ka- love that. <laughs> Kanaka Kai. Oh, okay. Well, maybe yeah. that's his name, so, well, maybe so, or it could be Kai Kanaka. Who knows? He he calls himself the Hawaiian hillbilly. But he has, every time we post an episode, he goes on and comments, Hawaiian overthrow episode, please. Uh, he's been he's doing it about this guy. for like years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Kanaka Kai, this one is for you, man. I know. At long last. And now he doesn't have to jump into the big woo. <laughs> right. So what I'm hoping, though, is that he's not like super well versed in this is just going to be inevitably disappointed. Hopefully mm. it's just something he wants to know more about. So he's been asking for it for that one. Well, I'm glad he uh, trolled us for years because this is a really interesting and not at all surprising story. No, it's not. And um, basically what we're talking about today is the overthrow of Hawaii. And it turns out that Hawaii, one of the most beautiful states in the union, probably the most beautiful state in the union, uh, the state where you and I got married, in fact. It depends Um, on what you're into. Sure, sure. If you're into tropical paradises, there's not much better. Somebody from Montana might be like, you can have it. Look at these mountains. Although I could see Montana people going to Hawaii and being like, I've been wrong, so wrong (laughs) all my life. And these boots are really uncomfortable. (laughs) Right. So um, it is a beautiful state, but if you go back not too very far, you will find that um, there's a lot of arguments you could make that it should not be a state in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and I'm curious about the about the current temperature of native uh, Hawaiian people and how they feel about that now. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to that eventually. Do you know? Uh, I don't know about the temperature of the Hawaiian people, but I know about some some proposals to help kind of reverse or undo some of the damage oh, that was done. That's for the end. <laughs> well, I guess we should go back uh, some many thousands <laughs> of years and talk about the settling of the Hawaiian Islands by the Polynesian people about, you know, 1,500 years ago, maybe 1,000 years ago, somewhere in there. And for many, many hundreds of years, there were – the control of of Hawaii was by uh, chiefs and then sub-chiefs. And these chiefs claimed that they were divine in origin. And they said we have a a set of very strict religious – rules that we should follow called Mm -hmm. the kapu. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, wasn't so popular over the years. Well, it depends. I mean, like, if you were born into that society and that was what you knew, that was just what you knew. But I get the impression that over the centuries, some chiefs and sub-chiefs enforced the kapu more than others. And um, one of the big bases of the Kapu laws is that there was a strict separation of men and women, and Mm. men were divine and women were profane, and they represented kind of like light and dark, and you have to have, you can't have one without the other, so they need each other, but Mm. also 
men were still definitely favored in that respect. But then if you also go look through Hawaiian history, there were also plenty of female rulers as well. So it's a it's really interesting. Kapu could probably get its own episode. And I'm sure now we know what Kanaka Kai will be commenting on all of right. our episodes from now <laughs> exactly. on. Exactly. Move it on. But it was, so they had their own like very strict uh, social um, stratification and religious laws for sure. Yeah. I think if Emily heard that, she would say, Chuck is not divine, but I am profane. So <laughs> right. we're halfway there. Right. Non-profane women rarely <laughs> make history. So speaking of making history, this is where a man named James Cook enters the picture. Uh, in the late 1700s, the very famous British explorer. Uh, he was the most notable, uh, some people say the first European to visit Hawaii. Um, definitely the most notable because there is some, um, you, you could make an argument that the Spanish were there before him at some point. Yeah, they have maps that appear to be Hawaii from like the 16th century. Yeah, so uh, the Japanese as well. But um, Cook was the first person to go as an Englishman which was a big deal as a colonizer, and say, I'm charting this island, uh, or these islands, I'm going to name them the Sandwich Islands. <laughs> not yeah. A, not a great name. No, because, well, James Cook was well known for loving sandwiches. So sure. He, he was so crazy. Actually, the, it was named for the Earl of Sandwich, John Montague. I figured. And it's the very same Earl of Sandwich, though, that sandwiches are named for. So that guy right. was really, he was a, a, an influencer. And Hawaii's known for their sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, poi sandwiches. So Cook visits, uh, he visits a few times um, and kind of did a lot of traveling while he was there. So he, he makes one visit and then just starts sort of exploring uh, the islands around Hawaii, eventually comes back kind of on that same trip and gets really aggressive at that point. Um, not a nice fellow trying to do sort of the the colonizer thing here. Mm-hmm. Let me make a deal with you. Um, let me trade something that isn't very valuable for something that is very valuable, uh, which is to say your land. Right. Um, and, yeah, he was just basically doing the standard Euro explorer thing. Uh, which Euro is trash explorer? <laughs> exploitation, trying to get everybody into craft work, that whole thing, right? Yeah. So, um so Cook, I guess he, he overstepped his bounds finally, and he was actually killed in a major battle um, after some of his uh, his men kidnapped um, a Hawaiian chief. Well, he he did it personally from what I saw. Oh, is that right? Okay. I said by his own hand. Not a good move. No. Not a good Not a good move. Um, because one thing about the Hawaiian Islands, they were ruled by those chiefs and subchiefs, like you said. But I get the impression that um, they were they were united largely when it came to the kidnapping of any Hawaiian chief by a European outsider. Yeah, like you can fight with your brother, but if someone else picks on your brother, <laughs> mm-hmm. then you gotta you gotta join forces. Who would ever pick on Scott? <laughs> well, I was thinking of you and me, but sure. Oh, brother. Like real brothers, too. Right. Well, and blood brothers. I still have that scar on my palm. <laughs> I Actually, mine was a squib. I, I faked it. <laughs> I thought that tasted like a high fructose corn syrup. Yeah. You were like, Chuck is sweet blood. <laughs> it's so sweet. Like Scott. So, yeah, Cook is uh, kidnaps this guy. They They did not respond very kindly to that. So they sent a faction down there to attack him and his boats. They were on the beach, and that's where he died, face down in, in shallow water. He was bonked on the head mm-hmm. by one 
chief, I think, and then stabbed by that chief's um, kind of attendant. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So um, this is a this is a huge battle, a momentous battle in the history of of Hawaii. It was very important, and not just because James Cook died, but because there was a uh, one of the I guess low level warriors there, or mid, middle class warriors, I guess, um, by the name of Kamehameha fought quite bravely in that battle. And Kamehameha actually went on to become the first genuinely influential Hawaiian chief, maybe the most significant Hawaiian chief of all time, because he, while he was there fighting the Europeans, he's like, man, these guns, they they work really well. And, you know, these Europeans are willing to sell them to you. And he figured out that if he could amass some European um, support and European weapons, he could get all of Hawaii basically under himself. And that's what he said about doing over the course of a couple decades. Yeah, reading this stuff, uh, this was the grabster, right, that helped us with this one? Mm-hmm. It, it seems oh, to I'm be— Oh, I'm sorry. No, it was James Mishner. Oh, really? No, you remember oh. <laughs> James Mishner would write those thousand-page epics about, like, I think he wrote one on Hawaii. And I don't basically even know who you're talking this, about. This grabs, oh, so James Mishner is this author. Okay. He'd write these exhaustive historical fictions, um, and one of them was Hawaii, but they would be like a thousand pages easily. And I was making a, a jokey comment on Grabster's gotcha. research <laughs> skills. Yeah, English major over here flew right over my head. <laughs> and by the way, a little quick side note that I wanted to mention. Uh, I am speaking of epic tomes. I'm reading the Beatles biography from Bob Spitz that's like a thousand pages. Oh, yeah. And uh, one thing I wish we could have mentioned, I know you hate the Beatles, but one thing I wish we could have mentioned in the pirate radio thing was uh, Radio Luxembourg. There would have been no Beatles without them because independently, Paul, George, and uh, John were all on their own listening to Radio Luxembourg, and that's what turned them on to music uh, to begin really? with. Yeah. That's cool. Turn me on, Radio Luxembourg. Turn that's me on. Fact. Turn me on. Uh why I did not see the Beatles making an appearance in this episode. <laughs> so, where are we now? Uh, okay, Kamehameha? So, yeah, Kamehameha. Oh, I know what I was going to say was um, a thread through this I found is that back then, uh, Hawaiians were largely underarmed in most cases. That's a big thing. And then also, just like with all other um, colonizations from outside European forces, disease basically paved the way for imperialism. Oh, sure. Where even even if they were underarmed and they didn't typically have standing militaries, um, the uh, I should say the Hawaiians didn't. The, if, even if they had, there there was like a plague that came around in 1803 that killed off half of the population. They think it was yellow fever. Yeah. Um, there was another measles outbreak about 50 years later that killed off another quarter of the population. So when you're dying off in, like, numbers like this. How could you possibly defend yourself, especially against people who have these superior weapons, like guns, germs, and steel, as Jared Diamond put it? Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the same story as, as America and the native population here. You know, it's like, hi, we're outsiders, and we have guns, and here's some smallpox on yeah, the side. But, but God decreed that this, this should be our land because he killed all of you off with these smallpox. Right, because you have no immunity. It's the same depressing story over and over again. It is. Um, so when Kamehameha was was ruling Hawaii, which was really – he was firmly entrenched by the almost turn of the century, late 1700s. Uh, he was pushing – and, you know, so much of this boils down to money and class. 
and he was really pushing for trade with Europe. Um, he wanted the elite landholders of Hawaii to kind of remain in that position. Mm. Um, he was traditionally religious with the kapu and supported that, but he was very much, you know, like let's let's enrich ourselves as sort of the ruling class. For for sure, but he also and he was also very open to the idea of <clears throat> exploiting European influence for you know to strengthen his his kingdom or his house I guess is what it's called. He actually had two advisors, Isaac Davis and John Young, uh, uh, Englishman and a Welshman, um, who were his closest advisors. And apparently, I can't remember which one it was, but. When one of them, whenever they would part company, Kamehameha would just begin sobbing because he just knew oh. one day that they that he was going to leave, and he just loved them that much. Interesting. So, yeah, it is very interesting. It's one of those things where, you know, we were raised as, like, Anglo-Euro-American boys in on the eastern seaboard of the United States, right, in the Midwest. So when you research history like this, it's just like, Hawaiian chief did this, and then this Hawaiian chief came along. But when you start to look into them as we were older, it's it's just always so fascinating to me just how complex and complicated history really yeah. is, you know, and just how boiled down it typically is presented as. Yeah, totally. That's because, <clears throat> I don't know, I, I think teachers do a, a good a job as they can, but when we were in school, the history we were taught was pretty uh, pretty simplified. It is. I mean, there's also like a real um, advantage to dehumanizing the people that you've done wrong to over right. the centuries, especially when they live in a state of yours still. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. So uh, under his rule, he managed to sort of, sort of unify the kingdom of Hawaii. Um, it wasn't like everyone was completely on board with what was going on, especially with the kapu and human sacrifice and some of that stuff that happened. No, but they did live under his rule, whether they liked it or not. He was a very strong king. Yeah, because he had guns, finally, and mm -hmm. people didn't, and so they couldn't rise up against him. Um, but after he died is when things got really complicated Yeah, because then you had uh, Hawaiian landowners, you had white people that owned land, and then you had this third group, uh, this really large working class, even though many were killed off, still a lot of people, <laughs> And that really complicated the whole situation. And maybe we should take a break there? We should. All right. We'll take a break and we'll talk about uh, what complicated that even more right after this. So, Chuck, we have this, this kind of like a brief sketch of what's going on here. We have a native uh, group, the native Hawaiians, who live here, and they are autonomous in running their own show. But then the European explorers have showed up, and they are trying to make headways in exploiting this area as best they can commercially um, for agriculture. At first it was sandalwood, and then it moved on to, uh, I think, cattle, and then finally like sugarcane. Um, and then those uh, European white landowners in Hawaii started bringing in tons and tons of migrant workers in basically like slave labor conditions. So you have these three groups kind of coming together in Hawaii, only one of which was originally there. Yeah, and another thing came in, uh, which was missionaries from Europe 
uh, Protestant missionaries for the most part, and they did what missionaries do, which was say, hey, you should be Christian and not worship whatever, uh, you know, Hawaiian god you worship. And this was a big deal because there were, you know, Hawaii had a long, rich tradition, um, a very sacred tradition of religion, and this was not that at all. But like they do, they um, were pretty forceful in, in making sure Christianity took hold among some of the people, and it became a pretty big deal in Hawaii by like the sort of mid-1800s. Yeah, for sure. So, in, in just like with other places where the missionaries were kind of like the leading edge of the spear as far as imperialism goes, or they just were the first to kind of brave this and bring Christianity and, a, you know, air quote, civilization to the area. So, after they started to make headway and started to change the culture, it it, may, it allowed greater entree for, for more like commercial interests who had nothing to do with religion. They were just coming to, to work the land kind of thing. Yeah, in uh, 1840, this is when Kamehameha's grandson, Kamehameha III, um, wrote the first real legit Hawaiian constitution. Uh, there would be many more to follow. <laughs> so don't worry. Right. <laughs> this is just the first one. And this one basically kind of kicked uh, Kapu law to the side, was a little more Christian, a little more Western, mm -hmm. uh, for lack of a better word, and basically said, all right, um, you can now vote over here. And this is kind of the, the first entree of what democracy would look like there. Yeah, I mean, it, it created a judicial branch, a legislature, like it it sounded awfully familiar, really, as far as constitutions go. And it was a huge watershed moment because, like you said, it replaced Kapu with, like you said, Western-style democracy, basically, or some version of it, the beginnings of it, I guess. Yeah. And it also would would establish this this framework, this foundation for people to point to and be like, oh no, no, we want to we want to go further and further toward the Constitution, not back toward the old ways. So right. it, it was like a goalpost that was set there that could be pointed to as, oh, we don't want a monarch anymore. Remember, we want this legislature and the judicial branch and all this this stuff that Americans and Europeans are accustomed to working within. Yeah, and also uh, money was a big complicating factor. Um, like we said, anytime money is introduced and there's very valuable land, it's going to get pretty grabby. And that's what happened when the white Europeans and Americans said, wow, this soil over here and the climate over here is great for growing stuff. And we're not there, you know, they don't have workers' uh, rights laws here. So we can really, really get cheap, cheap labor, if not. Um, like you said, basically enslaved people essentially yeah. uh, from Asia to work over here and not really paying much money. Like bring them over under false pretense, say how great it is, how much money they're going to make, and then kind of build them back. It's sort of like signing a record contract, then bill you back for all the expenses <laughs> of getting over there and overcharging for their living quarters, which were terrible. But it's, you know, it, it's exploitation that we've seen time and time again. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's still going on today, you know, like the, with, it's basically human trafficking is what they were doing. Yeah. So, um, one thing about Kamehameha, the house of Kamehameha, when the first Kamehameha, which is an awesomely fun word to say, and also just reminds me of Magnum PI because sure. that was the club that Rick managed, the King Kamehameha <laughs> Club. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. Did so, not remember that. Oh, man. Uh, so anyway, I would just kill to like be in 1983 hanging out at the bar, the beach <laughs> bar in that club. But anyway, um, Kamehameha, despite there being like upheaval basically every time a successor died, um, he managed to establish the, a dynasty that lasted until the 1870s, I believe. Um, and the problem was is that there were no strong succession laws. Yeah. So when a monarch died, in a few instances, there were these periods called uh, interregnums, which is basically like, hey, you, you know the government? It doesn't actually exist technically right now. It's kind of a free-for-all while we figure out what comes yeah, next. We got we to gotta get this together and decide how to move forward. And in this case, they would have the legislature vote right. for the ruler. And um, this wasn't super popular. It led to rioting. Um, Hawaiians were like, no, we, we need – uh, we kind of didn't mind the monarchy, and we need these succession laws to be kind of ingrained. I think that that's a real, um, a real telling, a revealing tell about how the Hawaiians felt that they were like, no, we don't, forget the legislature. We just need better laws to say who succeeds who as far as the monarchs are concerned. Because I think that's what they were used to, and that's what they wanted, you know? Yeah, but what this ended up doing was kind of uh, – <laughs> there was a real divide here when um, – 1874, I think, was when uh, Kalakaua. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, Kalekaua. Kalekaua. I, I, I practiced it a million times. It's I did definitely too. <laughs> Kalekaua. Kalekaua. Yeah. I, lo- I mean, I love these words. They're so much fun to say. Oh, yeah. Um, even though we're probably butchering them. But I know. I'm pretty sure it's Kalekaua. All right. Kalekaua yeah. was the new king voted on in 1874. And this was the first real wedge because he had this faction that supported uh, Queen Emma and a real like opposition party was in place. Like people were very, very divided at this point. Yeah, Queen Emma was the wife of Kamehameha IV, so she had a pretty valid claim sure. on the throne. But the legislature said, no, Kalekaua is definitely our guy. He's now your your king and your monarch. And he was an interesting cat, too. He was known as the Merry Monarch. He was a bit of a bomb vivant. Um, Hula had been banned by the, the big buzzkill missionaries for decades. Like hula hoops? And, or well, hula dancing, I mean. <laughs> hula dancing, yeah. So so he, uh, Kalekaua said, hey, it's my birthday. Let's bring hula back. So he was kind of beloved for that. He played the ukulele, but he was also very corrupt. Like he took uh, a $130,000 bribe from some Chinese businessmen who wanted an opium license. And very importantly, uh, his whole jam was little by little, the power of the monarch's been eroded to, well, now it's finally my turn, and I'm basically just a figurehead here. I want the power back, so I'm going to do that. And instead, there were some white interests that had formed a group known as the Hawaiian League, and they were basically made up of landowners, businessmen, people who had, who were all like white European and American uh, people who said, we actually don't like that idea. And in fact, we're going to make you form or sign a new constitution into law. Um, and we're, you're going to do it basically at the, at the, at, at gunpoint. And it's going to be called the Bayonet Constitution, historically speaking. Yeah. So the Hawaiian League, they were, they had a bunch of different names. Initially, they were the um, the missionary, not the missionary league. The missionary what? The missionary party. Yeah, the but missionary they, they party. They thought that was too sexy. Right. So, missionary party became the Hawaiian League. Eventually, became the Reform Party, 
because <laughs> who doesn't like reform? And they eventually became, uh, because as we'll see, they pushed more and more toward annexation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if it was, were they officially called the Annexation Party? Or was that sort of like a... I, I honestly don't know. The way that they were introduced, I think, I, I don't know. Well, either way, what they did was they said, all right, we um, know that not many people, we, we are an underarmed society. So if we're going to do this, we're going to get um, the guns on our side. And that was where they got the support of the Hawaiian Rifles, which was mm-hmm. uh, a volunteer military unit, um, all white people. And like you said, in, in July of 1887 is when those Hawaiian Rifles got involved and said, sign this new constitution. They did. And so it basically said, you know how you thought you were a figurehead before? Now you are a genuine bona fide figurehead. Your power is completely at the um, pleasure of the legislature, which, by the way, is no longer appointed by you, but elected. And also further, by the way, um, we Europeans and Americans now have voting rights because you have to be a landowner and literate to vote. So not only do we have voting rights now to elect the legislature to basically do whatever we want, but we've also just excluded all of those migrant Asian laborers that we just brought over because they don't own any land and probably a lot of them can't read. So ipso facto, you go play some ukulele for a while, Kaleka Ua, and thank you very much for Hawaii. Yeah, I mean, I got the impression that it was under the guise of, hey, democracy is great. Yeah. And voting is how things should go. But right. like, but we're going to be the ones voting, by the way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it, I mean, it definitely was presented like that. Like they were trying to liberalize the, the island. But it, yeah, ultimately, it was for their own interests. It was when you when you really got down to brass tacks, which is Cockney rhyming slang for facts, as we learned. <laughs> So uh, I didn't think that was going to show up either. No, me. Uh, so in 1891, uh, that is when he died. Uh, the aforementioned Kalakaua, right? Kale. Kalakaua. Yeah. And he was succeeded by someone Who? he chose, his sister. Uh-huh. <laughs> Are you going to make me? Uh-huh. <laughs> Queen Lily Uo Kalani. Yeah, man. All right, I think that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. And so she, if if uh, Kaleka Ua had a problem with being a figurehead, Lili Uo Kalani was definitely um, opposed to the idea of just being like Queen Elizabeth, you know, where just showing up for um, state functions and that kind of thing. Like she was, she considered herself the ruler of Hawaii. She was the monarch who, who was meant to succeed um, Kaleka Ua. Fair and square, and had a real problem with this, and but by the the problem was that within the four years that Kaleka Ua signed the Bayonet Constitution, it, the doors had been thrown so far open for Western in interests, business interests in Hawaii that she basically faced an insurmountable challenge in undoing just the changes that had come in in the last four years. It had been slowly creeping up over the decades, but from that bayonet constitution forward over those four years between then and when she took over, the the changes were insurmountable, basically. Yeah, married to an American, too, incidentally. Um, Well, that that shows you, like, just how, how... intermarried American yeah. politics and, and European politics were with Hawaiian politics, literally. Yeah, and I don't think we mentioned, like, this whole time there are both American and British warships in Honolulu Harbor. Yeah. 
So, like, they've been there the whole time, They're, the the military. And I, I didn't get the idea that they were active at that point. They were just there, kind of parked there. Yeah, I think just more to send a signal, but yeah. also to keep other interlopers out. I think the British and the Americans basically considered Hawaii theirs. Right. Unofficially, but moving toward officially, because when you said the door was thrown wide open and change was afoot, it was the Hawaiian League that was really, um, you know, they had flirted with annexation a little bit, but by this point, they were really, uh, and this is where they took on the name, the Annexation Club, Mm -hmm. uh, like I mentioned earlier, they were really, really headed toward annexation, uh, which is where we have to kind of go back over to America and talk about the Tariff Act of 1890, or the McKinley Tariff, which was basically a very protectionist thing. Um, hey, we need U.S. goods to be in uh, industry here to be ramped up, so we're going to charge huge tariffs on goods imported into the U.S., and that meant Hawaiian goods. And um, landowners in Hawaii said, this is not good for us because this is going to make us raise prices. Mm-hmm. Sales are going to go down. Our profits are going to go down. And um, while they were, you know, the annexation club was making hay about democracy being a good thing, it really kind of came down to money. It, yeah, that's exactly right. With that, that in that McKinley tariff, like really kind of forced everyone's hand um, because, like you said, I mean, Hawaii was a sovereign nation, and so there were tariffs on the import. It didn't matter that they were American companies. This stuff was being produced in Hawaii. So when it came into America, there was a huge tax slapped on it. So they started saying, okay, we need to figure this out. Like, we need to we need to get Hawaii annexed. And the I, so I get the impression that the, um, the Hawaiian League kind of went from, there were some people in there that had been saying the whole time, annexation, annexation, it's definitely the way to go, to where that was like the point of the Hawaiian League from that moment forward was getting annexed. Um, fortunately for them, uh, Lili Uo Kalani, whose name just flits in and out of my capability <laughs> to pronounce, <laughs> she, um, she said, hey, you know what? I don't like all this. I don't like where this is going. I'm going to rewrite the Constitution. I'm going to restore the power of the monarchy. And you know your legislature? Your legislature can go sit on it because I'm passing this by royal fiat just by me decreeing that it's true. It's true. And when that came out, that news came out that she was planning on doing that, the Hawaiian League said it's go time. Yeah, and as far as the U.S. goes, you know, they um, they didn't outright say they wanted to annex. It was kind of a tricky situation for them. Mm-hmm. They didn't want anyone else to get in there, right, uh, in front of them, of course. But they also didn't, and they didn't want to. I feel like they didn't want to be too aggressive with it. Like, well, hey, if you're open to it, we'll talk about it. But we're not going to ask you to dance. Right. But it wasn't out of any respect or deference necessarily to Hawaiians. No. It was because they didn't want to tick off the British. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So, when Lilio, uh, man, so when Lili Uo Kalani said um, that she was going to, to rewrite the Constitution and this came out, the opposition was really strong. And she actually backed down. And she announced, okay, I'm definitely not going to do it by royal fiat, but I'm going to do it through normal channels. And and really kind of took the any hostility out of the move, but it was it was too little too late as far as the Hawaiian League was concerned. And like I said, they decided it was go time. And Chuck, I say it's go time for us to go to commercial. Let's do it. <laughs>
So it's go time in Hawaii. Uh, Queen Lily Uokalani has drawn a line in the sand. Uh, white men in Hawaii were super worried all of a sudden. And so that annexation club that has now changed names four times, changed their names again, mm-hmm. and said, all right, now we're the Committee of Safety. And by Committee of Safety, I mean we're going to lead a, a, a military coup. <laughs> right, which are typically very safe. Yeah. So um, there was a, a move basically to collect um, arms specifically to depose Liliu Okalani. Like that was the, the point that, that this, this, um, this, this group had. And I guess it was pretty, if it wasn't like overt, basically everyone knew about it. So much so that a, a loyalist to um, Liliu Okalani, his name was Charles B. Wilson. Yeah, he was which, a loyalist. Which we should say, so his name sounds pretty um, American. Sure. And that's for good reason, because he was American. And if you go back a couple of uh, monarchs, um, you will start to see, like, Germans and Americans and British people in their cabinets. Yeah. Like, as, like, foreign minister or secretary of finance. Like, just just Weird. like it's just, you know, some normal thing. Um, that's how entrenched everything was. So, Charles B. Wilson uh, was to Liliuo Kalani, um, the Marshal of Hawaii, which, um, as Ed put it, is kind of like the head of the FBI and the head of the Department of Defense all rolled into one. But he was in charge of the national police, basically, and he found out about this plot, and he wanted the plotters arrested for treason. Yeah, he called it out and said, arrest the, the committee, or whatever they're calling themselves today. <laughs> and the American members of the cabinet said, no, we're not going to do that because this could break out in violence. So let's all chill out. Um, that all changed on January 17th when there was a, a shooting. Uh, a native Hawaiian policeman was shot trying to prevent uh, delivery of some weapons Mm -hmm. to the annexation club. Um, He didn't die, but he was shot. And there wasn't like a lot of, I mean, James Cook obviously died pretty uh, in a grisly way, but there wasn't a lot of like actual violence and bloodshed that was rioting and stuff over the years. But I get the feeling that this shooting was kind of a big, big thing at the time. It was. I mean, it was the only shooting in the entire overthrow of Hawaii in this entire coup, which makes it significant. But I, I, I get the same impression that you had, that Hawaiian society was generally rather peaceful. And so to shoot somebody was a very, very big deal. Um, so much so that the cop got $200 for uh, <laughs> his, his wounds collected by the local yeah, community, which I thought me. was pretty nice. Pretty good uh, scratch back then. Yeah, I don't. I didn't look it up on West Egg. <laughs> oh, we should have. Yeah. Uh, so the Committee of Safety goes to you know we mentioned the warships in the harbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, they go to, or uh, the the USS Boston that's parked there, and go to Captain uh, Wilts and say, hey, you know what? Um, there are American citizens on the island there. Now you guys are having a good time, just kind of hanging out and playing cards. But there's property uh, that's in danger. There's American citizens that are in danger. And there are armed troops. Um, Like, we need you guys and your guns to come on the island. And he went, well, all right. Uh, Come on, guys. Let's go. And they all put down their cards. And 162 (laughs) soldiers went ashore. And uh, that was sort of the real turning point as far as an actual American military presence in their supposedly defending property and American citizens from danger, 
but uh, it really ratcheted things up uh, as far as conflict goes. Well, yeah, and particularly for Liliu Okalani, to her, she saw American troops coming ashore, um, establishing a fort like a couple hundred yards away from the Imperial Palace, and and basically creating a presence on native sovereign Hawaiian land. Yeah. And this was at the same time that the um, the Committee for Safety had run up on the steps of the Capitol building, read a proclamation that the queen had been overthrown, that the monarchy didn't exist any longer, and that she had been deposed, and that um, they were now in charge. And combine that, from her point of view, with the presence of American troops, she's like, okay, I guess the Americans just overthrew me. She didn't know who was working with who. She just knew there were armed troops. She didn't really have any kind of standing army or anything like that. So she made a very wise and, in my opinion, very noble decision to say, you know what? I uh, I will surrender for the moment. Because I don't want to, I want to avoid any unnecessary bloodshed. Like anybody who fights for me is going to get wasted by these uh, American Marines. And I don't want to see that happen. So I will surrender. But I'm not surrendering my position to the provisional government. I'll surrender to the United States of America temporarily until they can restore my position. Because this is BS. Yeah. And in, in her statement, we won't read the whole thing, but at the end, she essentially says, I'm doing this for now, uh, until which time I will be reinstated as the authority, at which point everyone just kind of patted her on the head and said, that's that's adorable. Yeah. And that she you said, think that's actually going to happen. She said, P-S-B-S. <laughs> and I don't think we mentioned this new provisional government uh, said, all right, we have a president now, and his name is Sanford Dole. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, um, Sanford's brother, James, founded the Dole Fruit Company in Hawaii mm-hmm. in 1899. So really no surprise how, how that worked out. Right. So so let's just recap real quick. Okay. So there was a group of uh, American and European white business interests, landowners, businessmen who overthrew, like during this, during this a little melee after a cop was shot, ran up onto the Capitol steps, read a proclamation that they were in charge. John John Stevens, who we hadn't mentioned, he was the American minister to Hawaii. He was very much in on this and in league with the Hawaiian League. Um, and he said, I, as re- official representative of the United States, officially recognize you, the provisional government, as the true government of Hawaii. I no longer recognize the monarch. And that was it. All of a sudden, this island kingdom of Hawaii that had been around for a, a thousand or more years and had been organized since for a couple hundred years or a hundred or more years— um, it just didn't exist anymore. Poof! Because an American minister recognized a group of other Americans who just said, we claim this place basically as our own. Yeah, and uh, they said, you know, we're voting for this stuff now. Dole is president, like I said. But the royalists are boycotting the elections. Mm-hmm. So the annexation party, which eventually became the American Union Party, they just were winning the elections because it was no contest, basically. Yeah, which is, a, I mean, that's a problem. You're in such a pickle with that, you know? Like, you're like, I reject that these elections are even valid on their face. Um, but but then if they just keep holding these elections and other people keep recognizing them as valid, then you're, you're SOL, you know? It's, it was a really sticky, terrible situation for the native Hawaiians and their, their monarch. Yeah, so Dole and, and the gang are firmly entrenched at this point, and this is when they can really, really start to go after annexation. 
Um, so over in America, you have Grover Cleveland in office, mm-hmm. and he's like, wait a minute, this this all sounds very hinky and illegal. So I'm going to send an envoy, uh, James Blunt, to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. You put together a report and and report back to me and let me know what's going on. Blunt went over, put together his report, and he said, yeah, it was super illegal what happened. And so Cleveland said, all right, Queen, um, if you want, we'll send troops in there to overthrow the republic and um, put you back in 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 uh, position of queen. But mm-hmm. what you have to do is, is you got to offer amnesty to that committee of safety that overthrew you kind of using our soldiers to begin with. And she probably had whiplash at this point, but she was <laughs> like, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. And actually those guys should be beheaded. Um, if I'm really being completely honest. And so Cleveland kind of slunk down and said, all right, well, I guess we, uh, we're not going to do that then. Yeah, he said, mm, beheadings are going yeah. to, it's going to be <laughs> tough to get press. past Congress. <laughs> so I guess we don't have anything to say here. But you have to kind of hand it to Lily Uokalani that, um, I mean, she stuck to her principles. Yeah. Like she could she could have been restored as monarch, maybe even back to like the, the pre-figurehead version of monar- the monarchy. And she said, nope, I'm cutting their heads off if, if you put me back as, as queen. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, the U.S. Congress gets involved. They said, you know what? We're the ones who investigate people. So let's send over our guy, John Tyler Morgan. And Morgan went over and his report said, you know what? This was not some illegal coup. This was just Hawaii being Hawaii. This is their politics. <laughs> this is how they do things. We didn't really do anything wrong. No blood on our hands. It's Hawaii. This is what they do. No big deal. <laughs> So the the Congress is like good enough for us. Um, by this time, also, um, uh, Cleveland had been replaced by who was Cleveland's successor? McKinley. Oh, okay. So the McKinley tariff came before all this, huh? Yeah, or it got, came after all this. No, I got the idea that maybe it was for a, as a senator or something. Okay, all I, right. I might okay. be completely wrong though. No, but that would make way more sense. But the the point is, is that McKinley um, was much more in favor of annexation. Uh, than Cleveland was. And so the the United States officially annexed Hawaii as a territory in 1898. And this was exactly, exactly what all of those uh, American and European landowners wanted. Because, especially in America, no longer were they subject to these high tariffs for their imported goods, because Hawaii was an annexed territory, But, Chuck, they also were in a state, which means that they weren't subject to U.S. laws like immigration, which meant that they could continue up their their human trafficking, which meant that as an annexed territory, their profit margins were as wide as they've ever been, basically. Yeah, I mean, those were, uh, I mean, they were terrible in reality, but those were the golden years if you're a plantation owner in Hawaii. Because yeah. you're you're basically just making money hand over fist with no oversight. Right. And by the way, I just looked up real quick. McKinley was a, a House representative when that tariff act came out, not a gotcha. senator. Thank you. That was a really great in-show correction. <laughs> we usually don't do this. Uh, so when does statehood come uh, on the scene? Because Hawaii didn't become a state until 1959, mm-hmm. which was not that long ago. No, it was, and it was a full sixty plus years after it was annexed. And is that because the they were just fat cats and they were loving it? That's a, that's exactly right. The 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 
powerful interests who basically ran the legislature said, hey, you know, we, we're really, like Chuck said, we're making money hand over fist. And somebody said, who's Chuck? They said, <laughs> just, just give it a couple decades. You'll see. It's going to knock your socks off. But they had no no desire to be a state because then that meant that their, the immigration laws would be imposed and they'd have to follow a lot more um, social and cultural mores that America had established. Um, and it was going to be a bad jam for them. The other thing was here at home, and it was just straight up like racist xenophobia. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, I don't know if we said to put a pin in it, but we were talking about all these migrant workers who, you know, had kids and stuff, and those kids were born there eventually became a non-white majority in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you know what? If we make this uh, place a state, he said they're going to actually uh, – these migrant workers are going to gain real voting power. Mm-hmm. And they have a non-white majority. And we really don't want those people in our Congress. In Congress. That was basically the reason that kept Hawaii from being a state until 1959. People didn't want people of Asian or native Hawaiian descent in, in D.C. in Congress, yeah. I guess. Isn't that nuts? Yeah. So it took until March 18th, 1959 to finally become a state. And then it took until 1993 for Congress to pass an apology bill. And this is hysterical. And it's so believable. But Ed (laughs) points out that they were – it was disputed because they were literally arguing about either the Blunt Report or the Morgan Report being more accurate like 100 years later. Yeah. Can you do Clinton apologizing? (laughs) Oh, what do I have to apologize for? <laughs> <laughs> that was great. So so that bill actually said that uh, Hawaii or the native Hawaiians, quote, never directly relinquished to the U.S. their claims to their inherent sovereignty. The U.S. said in 1993, in so, in, in so many words, like the United States stole Hawaii. Yeah. Hawaii is a state because we took it basically back in 1890 the, or the 1880s. Pretty great story. It is. So the you were asking about the pulse of Hawaii today. There's a bill that was introduced in 2000 by Senator Daniel K. Akaka, and he's since retired, I believe, but the Akaka bill is still around, and it basically would extend sovereignty to Native Hawaiians in virtually the same way that um, Native American tribes in the continental U.S. have their own tribal nations. They have their own governments that make decisions for them and they have their own laws and all that. Um, and there's, it's just never been passed. There's, I don't think there's quite enough support for it or what the holdup is, but it's still languishing right now. Hmm. I haven't been. I got to go at some point. Oh, dude. I would like to live there one day. Yeah. Maybe that's a it, good place for you, you and you me to retire. It's a, it's amazing. So, uh, and maybe I'll meet up with Kanaka Kai, the Hawaiian hillbilly while we're there. I, I think with there. your magnum obsession, you were destined to just while away with a, a coconut with a straw in it in your hand. <laughs> Who do I have to kill to get a refill of this coconut? <laughs> I used to be somebody. <laughs> right. How do you think I got this rainbow helicopter? Yeah, that's right. Oh, man. I've been to the magnum house before. Yumi took me. <laughs> Does not surprise me. Oh, it's neat. Um, well, you got anything else about the overthrow of Hawaii? Nope. Well, if you want to know more about the overthrow of Hawaii, there's a lot more out there. It's a pretty interesting story, and Hawaiian culture is pretty interesting, too, now that we've dug into it. And since I said that, it's time for Listener Mail. Uh, I'm going to call this Anvils. Uh, and by the way, this um, this is from Nolan. Nolan did not point this out, but we heard from many people who said that the smithy 
was not the blacksmith, but the place, uh, their workshop is called the Smithy. And oh, I, I, I didn't kept saying know that. Smithy, like that's the blacksmith. Yeah, that's what I thought. I think they're the Smith. Okay. Not the Smiths. That's <laughs> Morrissey and Johnny Marr and company. That's right. Uh, hey guys, love the episode on blacksmithing. I've been to blacksmith since I was 19 when I bought my first anvil. I started listening to stuff you should know during grad school when my anvil was sadly packed away. I had no time to use it, but thankfully it isn't on the shelf any longer, and I found myself sitting next to it while listening to your episode. Uh, seems silly, but these things have a, a real personality to them. They're like old friends. I met mine close to a decade ago, and it's a 1-0-16, 128-pound Peter Wright. <laughs> wow. That means something to, to Smithies. <laughs> I was impressed by the Peter Wright. Yeah. He's a legendary anvilist. The smithy. So uh, one thing on the show I thought I'd mention is about anvils. Josh said you want to attach the anvil to a stump to disperse the hammer strike to the earth, uh, which is partially absolutely right. Uh, which is partially correct, but missed one beautiful thing about a good anvil, which is its rebound. Uh, an anvil's quality can be measured by the rebound. This is how much force pushes back at you when you strike. Because this is a good anvil. I'm sorry. Because of this, a good anvil hits back when you strike it, and a good blacksmith uses this to effectively forge both sides of a workpiece at the same time. I also, one thing, I also saw somebody else write in to say that, that it helps you um, in swinging a 10-pound hammer, mm-hmm. like like working the, the rebound to right. your advantage, too. Totally. Okay. He said, you can tell if you uh, have a good anvil by the rebound uh, by dropping a ball bearing on it or lightly dropping a hammerhead and seeing how high it bounces. A dead anvil will have no bounce and only gives a soft thud. A good anvil bounces back a lot and leaves a ringing in the air. And this is actually where the phrase has a nice ring to it comes from. Oh, really? How about that? I love that stuff. I love it. Uh, It was a blacksmithing phrase. So great job, guys. As always, keep it up. Uh, Always love tuning into these shows. Can't wait to hear more. And that is Nolan. Thanks, Nolan. You really quenched our thirst for etymology. Big time. Uh, appreciate Nolan, appreciate everybody, all of the Smiths who wrote in to let us know all the stuff we got wrong, but also say, hey, you generally got it right. Yeah, so and farriers, we, we heard from farriers. Yeah, tons of farriers out there. So we appreciate all of you, and we're fascinated by the work you do. Agreed. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email. Send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.